Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Fighting Through Podcast, episode 24, Christmas at War with Bill Cheel. More great unpublished history. We didn't know where the Germans were. We were so tired after a few days. We had no more rations and little ammunition. There was panic. There was chaos. My mother usually managed to gather together an assortment of Christmas fare. Not for us any black market goods, immoral and too expensive. We did, however, sometimes receive American food parcels. It's Christmas Eve, yes, I'm 19 years old. Yes, I did think of home, so near and yet so far. Yes, a lump in throat, my first Christmas away from home. In London docks on a bitterly cold day. Sleeting in the wind. No Father Christmas here. At the beginning of December 1945, our company commander thought it would be good to give a Christmas party to about 100 German children of about nine years of age. Hello again. Today's main story is a poignant, heartwarming Christmas tale of goodwill to all men as my dad recounts the last of his days in the army in peacetime Germany. The story set against the brutal backdrop of a war just ended, and more on that in a minute. I'm Paul Cheel, son of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published in both hardback and paperback by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of these podcasts is to give you the stories behind the story. You'll hear first-hand memoirs and memories of veterans connected to Dad's War in some way, and much more. I'd like to wish a very warm World War II welcome to you. Whether you're listening for the first time, what a treat. Or for the fourth time, what a treat. I've re-recorded this episode for various reasons, and uh, this version has more stories in which you won't have heard before, as well as some music which wasn't available to me the first time I did the show. And today, I'm covering a lifting tale about my dad in Germany at the end of the war, when he was corporal in charge of the regimental police. Have your tissues ready. I'll be telling the story behind a photo of him whilst stationed in Duisburg. But you won't need to be looking at the photo whilst you're listening, especially if you're driving in the outside lane of a motorway, or come to think of it, the inside lane. And after Dad's story, I've got a few more Christmas at War stories to share. I'd like to give a quick plug for my show notes right here, because I do try to put decent notes together for every show, particularly with the accompanying photographs. So if you don't know what your favourite character looks like, take a quick look at the show notes at the website, so when you listen to them, you can picture what that person looks like, who, back in 1939-45, was just one of the saviours of our freedom today. 
Take a shifty at Wilf Shaw, Captain Tom Woods and Fred Reynard, utter heroes of Dunkirk and Gallipoli. I'm getting shivers up my spine just thinking about what these men did. And if you get a chance while you're there, please do click on any adverts that catch your attention as they do raise a small amount of money for the show. A quick bit of feedback to share with you now. Sid White comes from Norfolk, England, which means he lives in my own neck of the woods and not far from Claude Reynolds, who was rear gunner in Lancaster in World War II. Sid's commenting on Claude's adventures in episode 5 of the show. Sid said on my Facebook page, Excellent stuff. It's amazing to hear first-hand stories. And being from Norfolk myself, as Claude is, I was even more interested in his story. Well, thank you, Sid. Small world, eh? It's funny, but we really don't know who some of these people are that we might pass in the street and what amazing things have happened to them. If you've never listened to Coffee with Claude, look him up on episode 5 of the Frighting Through podcast. You're in for another treat. On with the show. I want to start with a sad cautionary tale about American troopers in the Battle of the Bulge. I've borrowed it with permission of Joel Stoppel's Battlefield Tours Facebook page, and I'd recommend that page for a good supply of stories, photos and movie clips about the Second World War. Here goes. Along the Allied front in the Ardennes, inexperienced American troops were overwhelmed by the fierceness of the sudden German attack which took everyone by surprise on December 16th, 1944. Lieutenant Tony Moody of the American 106 Division said, First, I was not afraid, but I was getting more and more afraid. It was the uncertainty... We didn't have a mission. We didn't know where the Germans were. We were so tired after a few days. We had no more rations and little ammunition. There was panic. There was chaos. If you feel that you're surrounded by overwhelming forces, then you flee. I was demoralised, sick as a dog, and I had frozen limbs. I kept thinking, my God, what did I get into? How much can I take? I stumbled into an aid station, collapsed, and I slept for 24 hours. The mind forgets many images, but you remember the feeling of hopelessness and despair. You just want to die. There you go. I think that story serves as a salutary reminder that Christmas was not candy-coated everywhere on the battlefront. And there are some excellent follower comments on that post, so I totally recommend you follow the link in the show notes. That's Joel Stoppel's Battlefield Tours. But having possibly made you all feel miserable after that story, I promise you it's all good from here. And hot off the press, as if in anticipation of my needs, Michael Stapleton has just written in. I've just listened to the episode with your wonderful mother. Reminded me of a story grandmother told me when she was still alive. She worked at Nosley Industrial Estate in Liverpool, and I believe the estate manufactured around 10% of the munitions for the war effort. 
She told me of one night where she'd finished work and the air raid sirens were going off, but she was too far away from the bunkers, so she decided to walk home because the trams were off and it was a whole nine-mile walk in the pitch dark and freezing cold with a friend she worked with. Funnily enough, I work within one of these little factories that still have some of their old original walls and windows from the war. It's December now, and I can say one thing. <laughs> it's cold. I think about how potentially I can actually be working in the same factory as my grandmother worked in, in wartime. Around a year ago, we had to be evacuated when the old bomb shelter over the road was being excavated for some new buildings. And they found... an unexploded bomb from the war. I don't have anyone to talk to about this stuff, as they don't seem interested in anything wartime at all. Frustrating, really, because without the effort of all those who lived and died through the war, we wouldn't be lucky enough to have what we have today. That's Michael Stapleton in Liverpool. And uh, in correspondence with Michael, he kindly provided me with a, a thought-provoking P.S., my grandmother's name was Elizabeth Williams, and she was born February 1920. Towards the rear of the estate, there are actually still train lines that used to take the munitions from the industrial estate to Liverpool docks for transport. With so much being manufactured here, I don't think it's impossible that your dad may have fired a bullet that was manufactured here by my grandmother. <laughs> How good would that be, Michael? Thank you for writing in. This next Christmas at War story is the main event and it's from Dad's book. It relates to the end of his war. And if Dad experienced the Dunkirk spirit in 1940, he was to find some real Christmas spirit in 1945. I'm just having a sip of Normandy Calvados. Join me if you can. Cheers. If you're able, nip to the fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk website and you'll find a photograph of Dad um, under episode 24. And that's the scene setter for the story. And uh, you don't have to, have to look at the photograph to understand the story, but it'll just add to the experience if you do. Um, the original photograph, of course, was in black and white and have recently had it colourised by specialist Marina Amaral, just for the podcast. It's December 1945. The war in Europe is over, and the Allies have occupied war-torn, defeated Germany. Having been wounded during the fighting in Normandy following D-Day, Dad's recovered from his wounds at Dundee in Scotland and chooses to rejoin his pals, ending up in Germany as the war comes to an end. But he's now in the East Lanx Infantry Regiment. When he left England, he thought he was going to rejoin his beloved Green Howards, but he didn't know they'd been withdrawn from battle. So Dad finds himself making new friends yet again. 
He's assigned to the regimental police in headquarters company, patrolling in this story, Dewisburg. During his time in Germany, he was stationed at various places and covered Hamburg, Dusseldorf, Essen, Oberhausen and Dewisburg, amongst other places. And in his memoir, Dad says, We did patrols on our motorbikes, and to be frank, it was becoming enjoyable. The days had gone when there was any possibility of resentment towards our presence. The population had suffered the first shock of defeat and were now accepting what they could not possibly have foreseen in the heyday of their country. The companies of the battalion were spread out over a large area and it was my duty to cover that area, which involved having to cross an excellent pontoon bridge across the River Elbe at Dewisburg. It was a marvellous feat of engineering. The engineers were very clever doing the work they did on the Bailey Bridges. Dewisburg too had been a prime target of the Air Force. Just picking up on that point, uh, Dad observes in his memoir that many areas of Germany had been absolutely flattened by Allied bombing. He said of Essen, for instance, they certainly got more than they'd bargained for. It pleased me enormously to see it and to remember it and it was a pity Hitler didn't live to see the results of his madness. So moving to the photograph, I'm going to describe it now. Dad's standing on a school sports field. He's alone, and he's in uniform. On his brown battle dress, he's wearing the badge of the East Lancashire Regiment. He's got a Lance Corporal stripe on, though he's about to be promoted to full corporal in charge of the regimental police. On his right wrist is the brown leather duty brassard, which is a sort of strap that signifies he's on duty to anyone who needs to know. On his head is a huge, almost oversized brown beret, or more correctly, the general service cap. Dad once quips about that hat. I never did like those berets. He's got the white webbing worn by the policemen. One diagonal strap and a belt that's now sitting on my desk today as I record this show. I've tried it on for size and I'll tell you this, even though I'm pretty fit for my age, there's no way I can fasten it round my waist. So Dad must have been incredibly fit and trim. Mind you, he was way less than half my present age, so we shouldn't be too surprised. I've put a photo of the belt in the show notes. He's got white ankle covers on called putties and polished black army boots. How smart he looks. Proud, smart and gazing into the distance, he looks in a contemplative mood as he poses for what could be one of his last photographs in uniform. He could be reflecting upon his war, the tragedy and violence he's witnessed. On the horrors he's seen, and hopefully some of the better times. Even though he's in uniform, he's not carrying a gun, certainly not on this day, as he's there to supervise a children's Christmas party, and this is where it gets better and better. Over to Dad. At the beginning of December 1945, and bear in mind the war ended in May 45, 
Our company commander thought it would be good to give a Christmas party to about 100 German children of about nine years of age. When the day arrived, they were assembled in the school hall and the police were present to give a hand. The looks on the children's faces were a just reward for the effort put into the party. They had never seen such a spread in their young lives. Food had been short in Germany for years and it was great to see them all so happy. At the end, a teacher told them all to stand and thank our officers. Then the teacher standing at the front raised her arms for attention, gave some instructions and the children all started to sing their national carol, Silent Night. We were all very touched, it sounded so beautiful. I was so impressed that every year I think of those German school children in that schoolroom near Jewisburg. The memories so vivid that in December 1986, 41 years after the occasion, I wrote to the Information Bureau at Jewisburg telling them of my experience and asked if there was a record available of German children singing Silent Night and if they'd send it to me, letting me know how much money I should send back. They replied sending the record I'd requested with English and German words on an enclosure. It was a very kind letter which I've kept. They thanked me for sharing my memories with them, and the record was a gift from the German people. I can't express in words my feelings. Sufficient to say that every Christmas I play that record recalling that lovely day in 1945. And listener, this is indeed the actual record, crackles and all. Well, how good was that? After all the cruelty, violence and hatred, it turned to the victors to show some compassion and kindness to these poor young kids and help lay the foundations for a peaceful and hopefully forgiving Europe. If I had a time machine, I would love to go back to that point in history. There's another photograph I'm sharing with you in the show notes. It's four regimental policemen and it's just great because as you go from left to right, the expressions and the stance of the men changes from not many medal ribbons but casual and smiling to several medal ribbons, steadfast, smart and resolute, which is, which is my dad. And it's a wonderful reflection in my view of how the war affected people. Of course, these particular guys 
haven't seen all that much action and I think that's reflected in their attitude. But hey, the war's over, so why wouldn't they be smiling? Take a look anyway and see what you think. I'm posting another photograph in the show notes of Dad enjoying a beer with his mates on a sunny day. Wow. There's a PS coming up, of course, but just for a moment, news of the next episode. It's uh, number 25, Rufty Hill meets Winston. And uh, the photograph that goes with the episode depicts Rufty Hill, one of Dad's comrades, clowning about with friends in a photograph booth in Limassol, Cyprus in 1941. And they've got one more distinguished and unexpected guest. Bill Vickers is another character in the photograph, and the story goes back to the start of the war. How these lads met, what special connection brought them together, and what tragedy was to befall some of them. And there are some very poignant moments in this episode, so you'll need your tissues handy again. And I'm posting the photograph on the website right now, so if you want to check it out, go to the show notes for the episode 25 at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. The first time I recorded this episode, three years ago in 2017, I announced that I'd had nearly 100,000 downloads, which I found quite incredible. Well, would you believe that the figure in 2020 has now ballooned to over half a million and counting? So to you, as one of my several thousand individual regular listeners, I say thank you for your continued support. Um... And I want you to know how much it means to me. Uh, as much fun as it is doing this podcast, I would not keep it up without the support that you give me. So, in December 2020, I'd like to wish you a safe, happy Christmas and a great New Year. And if you're listening to this in 2120, then I include you good folks too. We seem to have all too many problems on our planet at the moment. And I'm saying this today, and I said the same thing three years ago, um, and I hope they've all been solved. Just one apology from me about the sometimes challenging sound quality of this show in a 22nd century context. But don't you know, we're only just getting over the Second World War. If you would like to make a contribution to the time and materials behind this podcast, I'd be most grateful. I expend many hours indeed on each show, so if you enjoy listening as much as you do reading your favourite paid-for magazine, then please do consider sponsoring me. Monies I receive are now going to the Salvation Army. If you wish to make a small monthly payment, which can easily be cancelled at any time, go to patreon.com slash fighting through where you'll find full details that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash fighting through there's a link from the home page or if you just want to tip me the price of a coffee paypal's an option there are links from my home page at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk and no amount is too small if i got one dollar one pound off everyone just once well I'd be smiling to say the least P.S. <laughs> I've got I've got quite a few Christmas stories and another musical treat to share with you now so put your feet up 
unless you're driving of course and enjoy. This next tale was posted by Joyce Gibson on the BBC People's War website and it was first written for a booklet being produced by shout out alert U3A or University of the Third Age. Joyce was a founder member of uh, the U- University of the Third Age in North Down and Ards in Northern Ireland, although it's a UK-wide institution. She says that U3A is a social and educational organisation for retired people who aren't satisfied with coffee mornings, etc., and are keen to get to know people and sometimes want to use their grey matter a bit more. There's a website, U3A. Dot org dot uk, where we're told that across the UK, members are learning, staying active and having fun in later life. It's local, social, friendly, low cost and open to all. And it's got interest groups covering a wide range of topics and activities. There's a link in the show notes. Here's Joyce's story. On reflection, the phrase Christmas in wartime recalls scenes of deprivation, innovation, frustration and confrontation. I'll explain. We were deprived. There's no doubt about that. Still reeling from the effects of the 1930s depression, we were ill-shod, ill-clad, ill-furnished and undernourished and at no time was this more evident than at Christmas. But Christmas is Christmas, and tradition had to be adhered to. My hidebound father was adamant about that. The lead-up to Christmas was exciting, probably much more exciting than it is for today's children, who have and do so much. The co-op store's party sticks vividly in my mind as something very special. It happened every year for the children and grandchildren of members who received the divvy, the bonus from their loyalty scheme. Every penny counted, and my grandmother was a staunch supporter. Mind you, you might have got a few pence back, but looking back I feel there was a certain amount of quality lacking. In those days, however... I had no such thoughts and looked forward to the jam buns and games such as musical chairs and pass the parcel all year long. I think there may even have been a small gift, but I don't remember anything notable. I think small was the operative word. Nevertheless, it was a brave effort to give us children as normal a life as possible. Talking of presents, everyone had of course to receive something on the day. We children got several things. Luckily, my mother was nothing if not innovative, the complete antithesis to her husband. The preparations began weeks before Christmas, as they do nowadays I suppose, but instead of a big spending spree, it was a case of make, do and mend. One year, my mother collected as many newspapers she could lay her hands on, tore them into tiny pieces and put them to soak in a large bucket of flour and water paste. The pulpy mixture was plastered to the cardboard model of a fort and painted with iron grey house paint. After my brother John had fallen asleep, I often crept downstairs to help 
My mother Lou must have been at it long after I'd returned to bed, as I, in my turn, received a truly hideous dull. (laughs) Not one of her best efforts, I may add. I don't want to seem ungrateful, and I quite understand the difficulties, but this nurse puppet was ugly. Her devilish looks came from the fact that her plaster of Paris head... (laughs) Her... Her plaster of Paris head topped the torso of a baby doll whose china one had long ago been smashed. (laughs) Mother's attempt to paint a face onto plaster had sadly gone awry, the gaudy paint running spectacularly on the damp surface. However, I didn't have to gaze on her strange features for very long, as after breakfast she accidentally fell to the floor the head shattering into a thousand pieces. Poor mother. My own efforts at present-making were no less diligent. All adult male relatives and friends received a decorated tin container filled with wooden spills for lighting pipes and cigarettes. I spent hours dipping old tin cans into tubs of water, on top of which floated a skin of oil paint in a fine selection of colours. The results resembled today's modern art. Females received purses made of scraps of leather punched and thonged, representing hours of agonising toil. Craft classes organised by my wealthy aunt and her friend have made an indelible impression on me. I've never since graced one with my presence, and I doubt I ever will. That same aunt was prone to gather supplies on the black market. My brother stored many a packet of sugar cubes, her habitual Christmas present, in an old jam jar. He couldn't bring himself to eat them. There'd be none left. My mother usually managed to gather together an assortment of Christmas fare. Not for us any black market goods... Immoral and too expensive. We did, however, receive American food parcels. Our Christmas cake was made from American dried eggs and fruit covered with soya flour, serving as a mock almond paste and white icing, made with guess what? Dried milk powder. It tasted absolutely revolting, but looked nice. I remember one particular gem made by my innovative mother in the form of a house. It was square and set on a large green painted board. All around it in the garden were little Eskimos sliding on a pond-like mirror, trees and Father Christmases. I don't know how she did it, but it was a true work of art. We usually had a turkey too, a real one. My patriotic but irascible father Jack, although too old to be conscripted, had volunteered to join the Royal Marines. In charge of supplies at Scarpa Flow in the Orkneys, he was usually given Christmas leave and returned home complete with a dozen eggs and a turkey. However, the arrival of this comparative stranger often caused a few problems. He had very set ideas, and Lou, not naturally domesticated, was obliged to unearth all the mothballed vegetable dishes and fancy cutlery not normally in use. She would invariably sit down at the festive table, thoroughly exhausted and rather demoralised. 
You can imagine the scene one December the 25th, when after all this effort he asked, where on earth did all these goodies come from? Oh, a food parcel arrived yesterday from Cuba, from Auntie Grace. And have you written to thank her, he'd ask? No amount of reasoning would placate him. His distant, aristocratic and respected sister had not been thanked. We'd foolishly admitted it, and all hell was let loose. The bombs and shells which frequently dropped round our house seemed preferable to the domestic upset which ensued that Christmas. With the wisdom of a ten-year-old the following year, I attempted to avoid such incidents. I resolved to make some Christmas crackers to divert attention. I laboriously typed mottos and conundrums found in a cheap book from Woolworths, and I had great fun collecting small gifts to put inside them. There were unfortunately no bangs. My ingenuity and chemical knowledge didn't stretch that far. After our often tempestuous lunch-come-dinner, usually quite late in the afternoon, we'd repair to the dimly lit and scarcely heated sitting-room. Army blankets doubling up as both blackout and insulation covered the windows, decorated by patchwork roses to take off the stark grey blankety look, and the door was hung with a large red velvet curtain to keep out the draughts. Cards from special people, usually those displaying coats of arms which pleased my father's ego, were arranged on the mantelpiece. Most of the others spread around the room were homemade, often from black and white advertising illustrations cut from the Radio Times newspaper and tinted with watercolour from the paint box. What must have been one of the first plastic Christmas trees, and a very bad one too, stood in the corner, given to my mother by a colleague at work, to cheer up the children, you know. I must have been a very precocious child, as I remember on a couple of occasions insisting that the Christmas spirit should be invoked with a carol-singing session. A neighbouring lawn mother and her three children were invited in to sing with us. The embarrassment on the faces of all the adults present and the excruciating sound we made have long stuck in my memory. In spite of the frequent trials and tribulations, I think of Christmas in those days so long ago with great affection. We had fun making do. Luckily we survived, and I have never again delayed writing my thank you letters. Joyce Gibson Joyce, thank you so much. And uh, I wish you luck with your continued work with the University of Third Age. And I've put a link in the show notes. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This is now a compilation of stories, um, also on the BBC People's War website. And it's by Ivor Chapel. It's a Royal Naval story. And uh, 
taken from a, a number of Christmases between 1942 and 1945. The location of the story is the uh, Kempston in the UK, the London Docks, Mid-Atlantic and Blackfriars in London. Here we go. Christmas 1942. I'd turned 18 in the October. Our Christmases were poor things at that time. We were so lucky with what we'd got. Our Christmases were true and warm, family gatherings. No oranges, no bananas, nuts hard to come by, no crackers. Very lucky to get a chicken for dinner. But we made the best of what we'd got. One thing we had in abundance was family love. In 1942, this was to be my last Christmas at home for the next three years, but who could tell what lay in the future? That Christmas, the thing which I remember most for some reason, was the fact that Mum had lit the fire in the front room. A big, cold and rather damp place, which would be at its best by about evening. I can recall Sister Doreen and younger brother Colin and me in there with Mum, popping in and out to make the fire up every so often. It would be a very special occasion to use the front room in those days. They were only kept for special occasions. Maybe being Ivor's last Christmas at home could be classed as special. I don't recall what we did, but just being in there was special. Funnily enough, I can remember my next three Christmases a lot better. In 1943, early on, I got called up into the Royal Navy. So Christmas 43 saw me as a Royal Navy gunner on board a merchant ship for ACAC purposes, anti-aircraft. We were known as DEMS, Defensive Equipped Merchant Ships, and that's where I served my three years. Christmas 1943, out on ship. A 10,000-ton merchantman named the Empire Spartan had come into London Docks, Millwall area, to unload the biggest part of our cargo into a giant silo. This was a few thousand tonnes of wheat. While we were there, it was decided to fumigate the ship. This meant the whole ship had got to be evacuated. Well, we'd got the merchant crew signed off and gone home. They were all Londoners anyway. Cargo all gone, ship empty. But now, who was going to guard it? All the other gunners could get home rather easily, except myself and a Scotsman. My journey would be about 60 miles, and jocks, (laughs) a very long way, as you might guess. It was going to take about a day and a half from start to finish. So off went our pals to be with their loved ones on this special day, wishing Jock and myself all the best. And here came the fumigators, did the job and left. Flooding the ship with gas, goodbye rats, cockroaches and sundry other creepy crawlies. Now it slowly dawned on me and us, we had no food, no shelter, we, we had our heavy coats to protect us, but we got to patrol the gangway and all along the ship for at least the coming night, and well into the next day. We hadn't even given toilets a thought. Food? Jock had managed to get hold of something like a tin of peaches and a tin of pears, I think. So I stood there. Jock went off to look round. We were in a flattened area apart from the silo, 
and some buildings nearby, but a really desolate area. It's Christmas Eve. Yes, I'm 19 years old. Yes, I did think of home. So near and yet so far. Yes, a lump in throat. My first Christmas away from home. In London docks on a bitterly cold day, sleeting in the wind. No Father Christmas here. Been gone nine months. Well, it could have been a lot worse. Jock comes back. He calls me over. I walk towards him. Over the way is a small backwater in which are tied up three or four old steel barges which ply on the river. One still has a wisp of smoke coming out of its small chimney in the stern. That'll do for us. Not a soul about. No air raids. All is quiet. Onto this barge we scramble down a small steel ladder and into a small scruffy cabin. A small donkey stove, still warm. Cabin, still warm. Lovely. Heaven. Jock says, let's eat our... <laughs> let's eat our dinner. Two tins. Oh no, oh no, no tin opener. Good old Jock, he's got his sailor's knife on him. Among the various things on it is a wonderful tin opener. So goodbye peaches and pears. Will it keep us going until about 18 hours or so if we're lucky? Then it's dark, no lights anywhere of course. Way over by the giant silo, just before it got too dark to see, we saw some people moving around. So we ambled over there. We found that these workers were on fire watch duty. The small cabin on the steel barge had begun to get real cold. All steel is not the warmest of things. So when these workers took us into their warm canteen, we thought someone had smiled on us. Well, it was warm and dry, and that was something. So out came the pack of cards. Out came the halfpennies, etc. Brag or nap was the game. I didn't play. It got boring. So I said to Jock, I'm off for a scout around. He, now enjoying himself, said OK. So out I strolled, looked around. All is quiet, so I kept walking, found some gates, can't remember if they were manned or not, and out I went. On looking around in the dim light, as I kept walking I came to a pub, of course. It's open, in I got, and I get my pint, and I sit down. As long as I don't get caught I'm doing fine. But there then occurred something that has lived in my memory ever since. Some time later, a little old grey-haired lady was sitting near me. We got chatting, and I told her my story of how I got to be there. She was very sympathetic, and she said, Are you telling me that's all you've had to eat? And it's Christmas? I said, Well, we've got to manage somehow, until tomorrow sometime. They wouldn't be coming to clear the ship until around noon, and then when we think about it, we've got to wait for the gas to clear. Oh boy, we really planned it good, didn't we? Anyway, this little old lady got to her feet. She said, You wait there, my boy. I'm just nipping out, but I'm coming back. Don't go anywhere. She must have lived nearby, for back she came in a short while and laid a package in front of me. There you are, my boy. You're looking after us. Now it's my turn to do something for you. We owe you boys a big debt that we can never repay. 
I felt good. I unwrapped the package. In it were some bread and cheese sandwiches. Oh boy, oh boy, her rations given to me. I can still feel it to this day. Yes, I ate them. Payment? No, never. Didn't want anything. Now there's a Christmas memory. Back to the canteen once more. Check the ship. All's okay still. As I gazed all around, I thought of my Christmases past, and I thought of Christmas now, this bloody war. In the canteen, the card school was slowing down. I went over to some chairs that were lined up against the wall, managed somehow to lay full length along five or six of them, and then I fell asleep. Next thing I knew, the night shift were going home. The new day shift were in, all clean and fresh, chatting and laughing. There was Jock and me, winking and blinking, out into the cold, frosty morning, feeling like something the cat had dragged in, as they used to say. Now we have to show ourselves, icy cold or not, so we're just waiting and waiting. Finally, along came the fumigators, gas masks on, onto the ship they go, doors opened wide, potholes open, etc. Off they come, all done, a nice rat-free ship now, no more cockroaches in the soup. Nobody allowed on board for the next hour or two, and that includes Jock and me. So now it's more waiting for us. Time goes by and gradually some of our lads come back and an officer or two and then it's back on board again. Oh, that gassy smell into our clothes and everywhere. It was still with us for days. So that was my Christmas of 1943. But when I know all these years later how some people spent their Christmases, I certainly considered my 1943 one to be remembered and lucky to do as we did. I certainly could count my blessings. I feel so lucky to be able to remember all these things, and yet I can't for the life of me remember Jock, my partner in our 1943 Christmas, just that he was Jock. But that's how wars are. Now it's on to 1944 Christmas, and what a time that was. My 1944 Christmas was spent in a 30-ship convoy in mid-Atlantic, a lovely place to be. We'd survived a 90-mile-an-hour storm of about three days when we didn't know if we were going to come through or not. A very frightening experience, especially to a 19-year-old landlubber like me. The ship pitched and tossed and you literally took your life in your hands to go up on top deck. We were an empty ship convoy and that made it much worse. Bound for the USA. In a convoy and at a time like that to be empty it couldn't have been much worse. You could see half of the keels of some ships as the stern went down into the sea. But one morning we got up and all was more or less back to normal. The escorts were shepherding blown off their course ships back into line. We didn't realise it, but Christmas was approaching. We never looked at calendars, we didn't need them. Our days and worlds were watchkeeping. Eight till twelve, twelve till four, four till eight, round the clock, twenty-four hours a day on the stern, in a gun pit amidships, or up on the bridge in a gun pit. That was our time and our life. 
Between times we slept and ate, washed our clothes and ourselves, or cleaned the guns. Somebody somewhere had, I suppose, mentioned that Christmas was getting near, but out in the Atlantic would be a bit too far for Santa Claus to come, so it would be just another day to us with our watch-keeping duties, anti-submarine watches, etc. I know I was sitting down in our quarters in the stern when someone came rattling down the steel ladder shouting, Come up on deck! Come and look at this! You'll never see anything like this ever again! We thought, what the hell is he going on about? We all scrambled up the ladder and out onto the deck. What a sight to see! He was right. Coming down between the lines of ships was an American destroyer. But this wasn't just any old destroyer. <laughs> it was garlanded in pretty decorations, all up the masts, all around the bridge signs saying a Merry Christmas. The best bit was, and I'll never forget it, Father Christmas in full regalia, standing proud, up on the bridge on a raised platform, waving his beard at us, and shouting through a megaphone, Ho, 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 a Merry Christmas, everyone. The icing on the cake that brought a lump to your throat was that nice and clear across the water came the sound of a choir singing Silent Night. Absolutely wonderful. Old hard-bitten old salts just stood there, tears running down their faces. To me, that was out of this world. That was my 1944 Christmas. A few days later, we tied up alongside in New Jersey, USA, to a foot of snow and temperatures of below zero. But it was still Christmassy to us, until they turned our heating off for three or four days to effect some repairs. But that's another story. So, I guess we all went ashore and made hay while the sun shone, so to speak. A by-the-way memory, it was here that I went into a shop to stock up on underwear. The girl asked me for my waist measurement. It was at that wonderful time, 32 inches. Nowadays it's best not to ask. On that Christmas day, I've got an idea we may have had chicken for dinner. I certainly don't recall any Christmas pudding. Now that's a Christmas that I've never forgotten. Now for 1945. Again, a mite different, you might say. I was then stationed at an old depot ship at Blackfriars in London on the Thames. HMS Chrysanthemum. Lovely name. My watch was stuck on board for Christmas. On Christmas Day, we all went next door onto HMS President, another old ship converted into a depot ship. Here for a beautiful breakfast and dinner as well. Us ordinary seamen were waited on by various officers and petty officers, an old tradition that for some reason was carried on over the years. The feeling was great, more happy faces, discipline relaxed, was worth waiting for. So that about concludes my four Christmases, which to me, funnily enough, as I now look back, are memories worth keeping and remembering. Of people and bygone days when we never knew about tomorrow.
That was by Ivor Chapel. What a great story. Thank you, Ivor. This next story is uh, by Constance Smith. It's about German prisoners of war in England in the northeast. Um, the location is in a place called Wylam in Northumberland. And the story is called Christmas with the Enemy. One Christmas Sunday, they invited German prisoners of war to our chapel. They were Lutherans and had been going into our Methodist services and had been made welcome by most, if not all, of chapel's members. So we invited them to the carol concert. They sang Silent Night in the original German and some people with a smattering of German joined in. For one hour the war was forgotten and we all celebrated Christmas together. We managed to give them a cup of tea and a biscuit too. It wasn't popular in the village, what we'd done, but they were somebody's sons, somebody's brothers, someone's husbands. Our soldiers were just obeying orders, just like they were just obeying orders. Often their English was very good and you could talk to them. It was interesting to hear their views about the Nazi regime, and many of them agreed that it was evil and should be crushed. This next one, uh, all of these are from the BBC People's War website. This one's entitled My Unforgettable Christmas 1946. Um, again, another one about prisoners of war and it's very poignant and it's by Genevieve or I think correctly Genevieve and it's an army story. I came to England as a German POW in September 1946. The war had finished 16 months ago and I'd been working as a prisoner with a German workshop company in Italy for about one year. We weren't allowed to communicate with our families but we were all eager to return home, starting a new life and helping with the reconstruction of a new Germany. Eventually, my turn came for repatriation. However, at the repatriation camp of Musterlager in Germany we were told that instead of going home we were to be shipped to England to help with the harvest. I was posted to number 9 Bomb Disposal Squadron at Heighton near Liverpool. Our job was to dig out unexploded bombs left behind from the bombings by the Luftwaffe. Although it was against the Geneva Convention to employ prisoners for such dangerous work, we didn't complain and got on with the job. After all, we were fed adequately and had a roof over our heads, whilst at the same time in Germany many people were starving and lived in squalor. A limited communication with our loved ones was allowed now, but the one thing bothering us most was the fact that the time we had to serve as prisoners was open-ended. In contrast to criminal prisoners, who were given a fixed sentence, we didn't know when we'd be allowed to go home. Our camp was surrounded by barbed wire, and guarded by Irish guards. We left the camp only to go to the different bomb jobs to which we were transported by lorry. Civilians were not allowed to speak to us as the non-fraternisation rule was still in operation. Just before Christmas these strict measures were relaxed. We were allowed to walk within five miles of the camp and stay out till ten o'clock. British people were allowed to invite German prisoners to their homes for Christmas. 
The reaction was overwhelming and showed the true nature of the British people. Although Liverpool had suffered badly by the bombings of the Luftwaffe, a flood of invitations arrived at the camp. Most of the British soldiers had been sent on Christmas leave, and as German POWs weren't allowed to use public transport, a skeleton staff of officers and NCOs had to deliver the Germans to their hosts and return them back again to the camp. With a fellow prisoner, I was taken to an elderly couple at Bootle. The lieutenant went up to the front door, rang the bell and informed the person opening the door, Here are the two Germans you asked for. We tried to make ourselves presentable in our prisoner's garb, but I felt very nervous. I hadn't set foot in a private house for years and was anxious to behave in a proper manner. I needn't have worried, the welcome was very friendly. There were no formalities, we called each other by our Christian names and managed to communicate quite well. The interpreting was left to me as I'd learned some English at school. I can hardly describe my feelings when we were invited to sit at the table for the Christmas meal. There was still food rationing, but it was evident that these people had made a special effort. True to British custom, the master of the house was carving the turkey and saw to it that their guests received an extra large portion. I was close to tears when I started to eat. In the afternoon, a younger niece appeared to take the weight off the older people to play games with us young prisoners till late night when we were collected for the ride back to camp. This act of human kindness shown to me by those few people represented the general feeling of the majority of the entire nation at that time and I shall never forget this to my dying days. I've got one last story for you. The story of the Christmas tree. When I first recorded this episode, I'd been to see my mum in Cambridge. And on her coffee table, she had a little musical Christmas tree. It's years old. Mum and Dad must have bought it in the early 1950s, probably not that long after the war had finished. And I'm sure that one reason Dad would have chosen to buy it is because you can wind it up and it spins round slowly whilst playing Silent Night. I remember playing with that tree when I was a kid, lovingly decorating it and playing with the various figurines and dolls we used to keep in the Christmas box in the attic. And there's a short video of that tree in the show notes. And to finish the show, I took the opportunity to record a few bars from it to share with you. And every time I listen to it, it reminds me of my dad all those miles and years away in Germany, holding a Christmas party for those poor little school children. How good was that? Emerging in at the end is um, a proper production of the same tune by musician Harry Standing. You've been listening to the Fighting Through Podcast, episode 24. Thank you so much for being here. Please do hear me next time. And I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now. (laughs) See you next year. I've got to go because I've got some presents to wrap. Merry Christmas, everybody.